Welcome to a special episode of City View with Mayor Tom Koch. I'm Mark Carey. And on this special episode, it's part two of Mayor Koch's conversation with the former chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Joseph Dunford. General Dunford is also featured in our newest documentary, City of Generals, Quincy's Modern Day Patriots. It's a documentary highlighting the story of seven military generals from Quincy. Make sure you visit quincygenerals.com for that. The film captures the city of Quincy's patriotic traditions and dedication of the General's Bridge and Park in Quincy Center last fall, featuring seven of the generals, all of whom can be referred to as modern-day patriots. Once again, visit quincygenerals.com. You can also find it on the City of Quincy YouTube page. In part two of Mayor Koch's conversation with General Joseph Dunford, the conversation turns toward the war in Ukraine, Russia, and China. Enjoy this special edition of City View with Mayor Tom Koch and General Joseph Dunford, Part 2. Hello, everybody. Welcome back. Uh, I'm very fortunate to have once again joining us the retired Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and Commandant of the Marine Corps, General Joseph Dunford. General, thank you again for joining me. Hey, thanks, Mayor. Good to see you again. You mean that? I do. I do, actually. I do. I'm always glad to be in Quincy. <laughs> I appreciate if that isn't obvious. I appreciate you taking the time obvious. out. I know you're a Quincy man, yeah. and I appreciate uh, your continued uh, uh, pride of Quincy because it, it, it goes a long way. Um, I'd like to shift gears a little bit. I know we spoke the last time a little bit about more about Iraq and Afghanistan and the service there and some of the challenges there. Obviously, right now, the world is uh, all eyes around the Ukraine. I know it's been a very difficult, challenging time, probably for our, for our military and, and NATO. Who would have thought this would happen in this day and age, right? In fact, they're reading a little bit about uh, Mitt Romney seems to be feeling his oats a little bit because he had suggested many years ago when he's running for president that Russia is the one we need to watch. And he was kind of laughed at at the time. And I'm not picking sides here, Romney, Obama, or any of that stuff. But it's, it's a real dose of reality that this stuff still exists in today's world. In light of all the things that happened in the 20th century, who would have thought would be repeating some of this? So, first of all, your your thoughts on, were you, were you surprised that Putin would invade? So, Mayor, I was surprised that Putin invaded on the scale that he invaded on. But we got to remember, he had invaded Ukraine in 2014, and there were still Russian forces in in uh, Ukraine in 2014. And I certainly, in, in 2022... But I certainly wasn't surprised by Putin's overall behavior or the fact that he would do something to undermine the sovereignty of Ukraine. Because if you go back to as far back as 2007, he gave a speech talking about the fall of the Union being the most catastrophic event in the 20th century. In 2008, he invaded Georgia and established what's known as a frozen conflict. Russia bit off a piece of Georgia, and they never gave it back. In 2014, he invaded the Donbass in the eastern part of Ukraine. He invaded Crimea. So if you look at this, we're really really talking about an almost 20-year campaign that Putin has been involved in uh, to undermine the independence, the sovereignty of the countries that are around him and exert Russian influence in what he believes is rightfully Russia's sphere of influence. Yeah. What's been remarkable is the the comeback of NATO, if you will. I mean, NATO hasn't really had to experience, I guess, anything too dramatic, although you just described some of those issues, but it didn't affect a, a NATO country. NATO has now come together, it seems to me at least, in, in the press stronger than ever, and we're seeing countries like Germany stepping up uh, the amount of uh, money they spend on their own military to assist in, in the Ukraine and all, and now... I think it's Sweden and Finland both uh, applying to join NATO. So 
things have really shifted in many ways. I mean, we haven't seen this kind of camaraderie ship since probably World War II from the NATO countries. What are your thoughts about NATO and their response? So we talked, Mayor, about 2014, and, and, I, and I suppose people could have rationalized 2014 and said, well, this is a limited incursion and it doesn't involve us. I think on February 25th of 2022, it was, it was very clear that this was something that involved all of Europeans and anyone who cares about countries actually uh, having sovereignty and, uh, and something that we've all stood against for a long period of time, which is where one country takes over another country with the use of force, something that we haven't seen on this scale you know, since, since World War II. And so, you know, what we've seen in the wake of that is uh, Europe's appreciation for the economic implications, the political implications, and the security implications of what Russia was doing in the Ukraine. And I think we can be proud. You know, as Americans, people talk about, you know, the end of empire, so to speak, uh, of the United States. And, and frankly, I think in the wake of uh, Russia's attack in the Ukraine in, in February, what we've seen is uh, a tremendous example of U.S. convening authority, right? So we've been able to marshal uh, the world against against Russia and to take steps both with regard to sanctions, providing military equipment to the Ukraine, and certainly from a political perspective, putting pressure on Russia as a result of their invasion of Ukraine. Were you surprised by the Ukrainian response? I mean, it's pretty inspiring and incredible how they've responded to this. You know, the, the one thing that, uh, that you can't measure, people... People talk about, were you surprised by the Ukraine or were you surprised by the Russians? The one thing that's difficult to measure before a war is the will to fight. Right. And so what we have seen, uh, I think anyone that, that could have foreseen it to this degree, it would be difficult to say you did. Ukraine will to fight. They're protecting their own country. They've been unleashed from a, uh, uh, an initiative perspective, small units equipped with high-technology equipment to be able to stop the Russians. I think that, that will to fight has been the difference uh, so far over the, over the past three months. Seeing a Wall Street op-ed piece, you probably have seen it as well, but I forget who the writer was at the time, but they were talking about uh, democracy in the world and the history of democracy and kind of contrasting here we are debating pronouns in high school here, and over there, the kids were filling sandbags and building relative cocktails before, obviously, they were sent off to, to other countries for safety and leaving their brothers and their fathers behind to, to serve. It's inspiring to me to see such defense of, they've had a taste of democracy, and to see them defend that, I think it's, it's, it's pretty amazing. I don't know if you want to comment on that. Just, you know, I, I think, Mayor, when you, when you think about, let's compare and contrast maybe the Russians and the Ukraines. So on the, on, the, on the Russian side, you have men uh, that were out on an exercise. They didn't know they were going to invade Ukraine. None of their leaders had spoken to them about what was to come. They thought they were out on an exercise, and in a few weeks, they'd be back home. So they weren't physically prepared. They weren't mentally prepared for actually invading Ukraine. And then all of a sudden, uh, they're told, hey, we're going to invade Ukraine, but we're going to free Ukraine you know, from the, from the Nazis, and the Ukraine people are going to welcome you as liberators. And then the Russians attack, and they're not welcomed as liberators. They're confronted by people who are protecting their family, protecting their property, protecting their way of life, and they're very, very committed to that. And I think it's a reminder, which is what you're alluding to, I think it's a reminder to all of us of what we have. Sometimes we spend a lot of time uh, criticizing what we have. But what we have is individual freedom that the rest of the world can only envy. 
And, and with that comes a certain degree of responsibility to protect that democracy that is ours. And I, and I hope that um, the Western world, when we think about democracy versus autocracy, you know, can look at what we have and say, you know, Ukraine people have showed us that what we actually have is worth fighting for. Yeah. That's, in my mind, one of the strong messages to come out of this conflict. I, I often say it, I think we, we've been spoiled really spoiled when you think about it and to some degree when you get spoiled you get a little soft and I'm paraphr- and I don't get too philosophical but I'm paraphrasing John Adams he spoke of every democracy has committed suicide at some point I certainly hope we're not coming to that but it's, it's, it is a great example of, of uh, what other people desire how fortunate we have been and I think the, the, we're coming up on Flag Day and that red, white and blue that symbol around the world means a whole lot of different things to people but the, that freedom that it stands for I think is is certainly remarkable. Now, along those lines, we're seeing off to the sidelines China. It's interesting, a lot of discussion about what they're going to do with Taiwan, and, and they've been flexing their muscles, as you know, very well know, in the Pacific for some time. In fact, you were the one that put me onto that book, The 100-Year Marathon, which was a fascinating read about really the long-term plan and view from China as far as their role in the world. Uh, you want to comment on maybe on that book or any thoughts sure. on China? Look, I think the, the one thing that the Chinese have helped us out with is they have very clearly articulated their long-term objectives and have actually laid out a timeline along which they plan to achieve their objectives. So all you have to do is listen to Xi Jinping's speeches uh, at the uh, Communist Party Congress that takes place every fall. Uh, you've just got to look at the readings, and you alluded to one book, The 100-Year Marathon. There's another book called The Long Game. They they have gone back to primary sources and, and identified what the Chinese plan is. And it's very simple. The Chinese, number one, uh, want to be the most influential con- uh, country in the Indo-Pacific, and they want the rules that inform the way countries interact politically, economically, uh, and from a security perspective to be advantageous to China in the Indo-Pacific. And we can see by their presence globally that they want the same thing globally. And what I would say to people who say, well, why does that matter to us? If you look at the way that China's, back to the theme of freedom, if you look at the way China's leadership runs China, and you look at the lack of individual freedoms that are inside of China, that's because they're mostly concerned with the legitimacy and the survival of the Chinese Communist Party. That's job one uh, for Chinese leadership. And if we, you know, would let China uh, be influential globally as they are inside their own country, you can only imagine the rules that would exist. And they, feed, they see democracy as a threat. And so they, they do their best to undermine democracy around the world uh, as they expand into what's called the Belt and Road Initiative. And what, at least my observation, one of the things that makes it more challenging for us to deal with these things is, I mean, he's in, he's in powerful life, right? I mean, the long... The long-term plan is by 2049, the 100th anniversary of communism, they're going to be the one sole superpower. At least that's what I get out of the book. Having said that, we in this country, we change horses potentially every four years with the election of a president. And then there's the midterm elections with Congress. And so, you know, the policies change dramatically every few years. It makes it, I think, a little bit more challenging for our nation uh, to lead on some of these issues in some ways. I think the more challenging issue, and that's what I really want to ask you about, is um, as the military, how do you react to that? How do you prepare for that future? And how do you react to that, to them flexing their mouses in the Pacific? I know we've got great friends in the Pacific. It's, it's uh, clearly dominated by China, but we've got some great friends that are 
freedom-loving people, including Japan and, and South Korea. So, Mayor, we, we, we start, when we think about the Indo-Pacific, we start with, we have five formal treaty alliances in the Pacific, countries where we've made a security commitment. Those are South Korea, Japan, the Philippines, Thailand, and Australia. So we have formal requ- requirements to, for mutual security for those five countries. And what that requires us to be able to do is to be able to move uh, U.S. military forces into the Pacific freely and then operate freely once we're there. And we, you know, we say operate freely, we mean sea, air, land, space, cyberspace. You know, the world has changed. The character war has changed in many ways with high technology equipment and so forth. But the, but the basic requirements haven't changed, which is our, our need to be able to project American power when and where necessary to advance our national interests and to meet our alliance commitments. And so that's when you look at the U.S. military and you look at the discussions about leveraging technology and look at uh, changing and adapting to the situation in Indo-Pacific, it's all focused on advancing our interests in the region and protecting our allies in the region against China, which what has China done? China has studied us since really going back as long ago as Desert Shield and Desert Storm. And they know that our competitive advantage has been just what I talked about, the, the ability to project power when and where necessary to advance our interests anywhere in the world. And the other strategic advantage that we have had is the network of allies and partners uh, in the United States. So those are the two things that China realizes you know, kind of form the, the foundation of the competitive advantage the United States has traditionally had. So as we are trying to solidify our allies in the region, even this week with the president's uh, visit to the Indo-Pacific, and we're trying to ensure that our military capabilities uh, keep pace and maintain that competitive advantage, China's trying to do two things. One, drive a wedge between us and our allies and partners in the region. And number two, field a, a set of equipment that is, it's really known that the Pentagon always has buzzwords, anti-access area, the in plain English, what that means is they're fielding increasingly capable systems to prevent U.S. military forces from moving into the region and then operating freely once we get there. Now, we also read a lot about the comparisons with the Ukraine, Russia, and Taiwan and China. And as the president just spoke recently about if Taiwan is invaded, that the U.S. would support them. Now, this goes back to 1979, I believe, with President Carter, he was on the heels of President Nixon, which opened up the whole new world of China, sure. which, go back to that book of 100 marathons, fascinating stuff. China, uh, Taiwan is part of China. So I, I don't know how we, how we navigate through that. Sure. So, you know, as you talked about, uh, Mayor, our, our relationship with, uh, with Taiwan began to change uh, during the Nixon administration. And what's interesting is it began to change because we were trying to keep Russia and China apart. And at this particular time, we were trying to develop a relationship with China so we could isolate Russia, which was our most significant threat, of course, the Soviet Union uh, at the time. And then in 1979, what's significant about 1979 is that's when we said that Taiwan was part of China. That's when we suspended the normal diplomatic relationships that you have with another sovereign country. We did that in 1979. And in a series of communiques, we acknowledged that Taiwan was a part of China. And the, and the caveat that we have had since then is, uh, but it could only be reunited uh, peacefully, that we wouldn't accept uh, forceful reunification of China and, uh, and Taiwan. And, and what the president has recently emphasized is that there'd be a military component to that commitment. But we've had something called strategic ambiguity all these years, meaning that we said that we found it unacceptable, but we've never actually 
made clear what we would do. We've left that ambiguous. We've left the Chinese, uh, you know, to guess about that. And I think what, what the president has done this week is maybe just a little bit move away from strategic ambiguity and, uh, and make it clear, at least from his perspective, that the policy will be uh, to provide support to Taiwan in the event that China attacks Taiwan. And there's also the economic part of things. I, I know, uh, and again, doing some research and reading, China's trying to get into South America and forming ties with countries in South America. Uh, they start economically, right? And, and then eventually lead perhaps militarily if things go well. I'm sure there's a lot of that going around the world. I know that Africa is a hot spot from time to time militarily because of the certain regions of Africa, the instability there. What do you say to the American people, some people that may be listening today that... Uh, I know that General McConnell recently said to me that the U.S. still is very committed and is the most powerful uh, military in the world. I don't even get on the nuclear thing because nobody wins in a nuclear war. But what could you say to the average person to make them feel good about that, that this country is still in a good place? Sure. I feel confident that today uh, we have a competitive advantage in a conventional war against any potential adversary. I feel confident about that. And more importantly, our adversaries understand that. Today, But I also uh, am sure that that competitive advantage that was unquestioned 20 years ago has eroded over time. Why has it eroded? One, we've seen Russia make a significant investment. You know, they've got people point to their economic and demographic challenges, but they have made a significant uh, investment in military capabilities. We've seen some of those. It certainly doesn't reflect in the performance of their soldiers or the leaders, but they have equipment that we've seen create great destruction uh, inside of Ukraine. And China has been embarked now for over 20 years uh, on uh, modernizing their military to include integrating it in a way that the U.S. military uh, is integrated in something called Unified Command, where the sol- soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines work seamlessly together in accomplishing a mission. China's not there yet, but they recognize that that's an important aspect of war, and they're on a path to try to develop that degree of integration. And then, of course, in terms of technology, uh, we talked about the 100-year war. It lays out very clearly how they view things like artificial intelligence and, and uh, quantum computing and, and leveraging uh, capabilities like hypersonics. And so they've made significant investments in these areas, again, all designed to change what they saw as an unfavorable balance of power, if you will, between the United States in China, and particularly uh, in the Indo-Pacific. But, you know, I I think when you talk to American people, what they really need to understand is how critical the Indo-Pacific is to our economy. You know, just turn over your coffee cup, take a look at your vehicle, take a look at your home, take a look at the, you know, uh, energy transition that people talk about, and see how inextricably linked our economy is to the Indo-Pacific. Some would argue too much. I I think... you know, we, we learned with the pharmaceuticals, 90% of them being manufactured in China in a course of a difficult time with, with another nation like that. And we don't have the manufacturing capability. It puts us in a weak position. Mayor, uh, what people don't realize, 85% of the high-end microchips that we rely on every day, 85% are made in Taiwan. 90% of what we call rare earth minerals, and uh, people may not know what a rare earth mineral is, but I guarantee you, if you drive a car, if you have energy in your home, if you're using telecommunications, rare earth minerals are involved in those. And 90% of the production of rare earth minerals takes place in China proper. Yeah. And so, you know, I think that we probably are not going to be able to walk back a globally interdependent economy 
but I think the Ukraine has uh, been a wake-up call for a lot of people when they start looking at interdependencies of things like energy and rare earth minerals and microchips and, and making sure that supply chains and even food dis- and Ukraine's even food, the breadbasket of- even food, taking a look at uh, the resiliency uh, of the supply chain and saying, you know, we probably need to do things a bit different than we have done before because the assumptions that we made about the access to these raw materials or food supplies you've talked about or energy supplies, the assumptions we made about that access can't be assumptions we make tomorrow, the ones we made yesterday. I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit, shifting gears. Uh, Maybe we can finish up with this. There are some nations like Israel that you required to serve. Um, And I've heard uh, proponents of this say everybody should serve in some capacity. It doesn't have to be military to serve the nation, to get that better sense of responsibility as a citizen of this great country. Do you have any thoughts on that? You know, so, Mayor, let's, let's talk about the, the good things uh, of service, right? So when, when you look at a young man and woman that serves in the U.S. military and they're exposed to other parts of the world, they're exposed to men and women for the other part of the country, two things happen. One is they recognize the truly exceptionalism of the United States of America. You can't help but appreciate America when you travel around the world and you see what else is out there. And then you start to realize that, uh, you know, although you're from Quincy, Mass., and it's the greatest place in the world, that Americans from other parts of the country uh, are good people and they have something to offer as well. And so I think it brings us together more uh, as a nation. A good example, not only the U.S. military, but if you look at the Civilian Conservation Corps in the 1930s, uh, which I had three or four uncles that participated in that, another example of where Americans from all over the country came together and their identity became more as Americans uh, than from their own uh, local communities. And so what I I am in favor of, of public service, but because of our culture, uh, you may be surprised for me to say this, I would rather it be something that we encourage in school, something that leaders and influencers drive young people towards, as opposed to something we make people do. And that's because of our country. Our country has always been about uh, individual rights and suggested with that are responsibilities. And what I would like to see is people feel uh, a commitment to public service because they believe in what we have and they believe that every citizen, you know, I always say democracy is not a spectator sport, right? right? right. If you want democracy to survive, you got to be engaged in some way. That could be at the local community. It could be in uniform. There's many, many ways to serve our country. And what I would like to see is that we put a greater emphasis, uh, almost go back to you know, what JFK had said uh, in the 1960s when he said, hey, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. We actually had a candidate for public office in our country last year say it's time to ask what our country can do for us. It's upside (laughs) down. It sure is. It's upside down. And so my short, you know, I guess the end of my long answer to a short question is I would like to see greater emphasis on public service be in our schools, Uh, that be a core element of our civics lessons, and that we inspire, encourage, cajole, as the case may be, young people to do something for their communities and country and find a way that their own unique skills, their own unique talents can be leveraged, uh, you know, to make make our communities better and make our country better. I can't argue with any of that. Well said, General. And uh, again, thank you for joining me. Uh, Maybe we can do this again someday to talk about a different project we're both involved with, uh, but we'll talk about that later. We'll leave them hanging on that one. Hey, I look forward to it, man. Thanks. (laughs) Thanks so much, General. 